Coming to you from Burlington, Vermont, welcome back to another episode of Cleared for Takeoff. I'm your host, Gavin Rice, and I want to share what I've learned in aviation both on the job, off the job, and what I've encountered everywhere in between. Like I said, I'm in Burlington, Vermont on an overnight right now, and as I've mentioned in the, I think it was one of the previous episodes, December is a busy month for me, and this is the the first part of it, the first week of December here. This is actually just a a two-day trip, but it's back-to-back with another two-day trip, so it kind of feels like a four-day trip with a quick break in between. So this trip that I'm on right now, uh, is it started Boston to Kennedy, Kennedy to Buffalo, Buffalo back to Kennedy, and then Kennedy to Burlington. So four legs to start the day, and that day didn't even start until it was a, just after a 3 p.m. departure. So we got into Burlington just after midnight, so pretty late. On the arrival, it was uh, it was interesting because the uh, approach controller, once we got handed off from, uh, I think it was Boston Center we were talking to, we got handed off to the Burlington approach controller. They cleared us for the approach to runway 33, and we were in and out of uh, some, some clouds. There was some light snow falling. It was more like a moderate snow, actually, but the, the weather uh, that we were getting was showing us that it was, it was light snow. It was definitely it was definitely more of a moderate snow, but it was really pretty out. Um, on the arrival, we when we were first above the clouds, just a beautiful night for stargazing. The the Big Dipper, Orion, you could see those constellations really clearly. And then we started uh, getting into the cloud layer uh, and started picking up some of that snow. Picked up a little bit of rime icing as well. Uh, we could just see it on the windshield wiper. But anyway, the the center controller handed us off to approach control. And the approach controller let us know, um, yep, you can go ahead and contact tower, you're clear for the approach. And uh, first contact tower, the, this was the, the captain's leg, uh, so I was on the radio. And the tower controller did give us a landing clearance, but we were about uh, 10 mile final or so. And he let us know that, hey, just a heads up, uh, the tower is closing shortly, so um, once you guys land, the field will be uncontrolled. Now normally, when you land at an uncontrolled field and you have an IFR flight plan, an instrument flight rules flight plan, which we always do in the airlines, you are in charge of closing your flight plan if the field is uncontrolled. And this does not happen often for us in the airlines. Back in general aviation, when we're doing a lot of training flights uh, or you know just for recreational use, uh, you do need an instrument flight plan and you're going to an uncontrolled field or the tower is closed, thus making it an uncontrolled field, after a certain hour, that you have to make a phone call to close your flight plan because it's very important that air traffic control knows that you made it safely. Because in terms of accident investigation, you know who, who knows what happened to the plane if they don't hear from you, right? But at a tower, a, a controlled airfield, the controller is obviously there and notices that you touch down, and you make it to your gate, and, and all is well. But this controller, even though we landed right at closing time, right at midnight. Uh, he did tell us over frequency, hey, just a heads up, um, even though the tower is closed, I will close your flight plan for you. So that was very nice, uh, nice of him to do that. Because in terms of you know controllers, these guys, as I'm sure you're aware of, a lot of controllers in the, in the U.S. right now are just getting overworked and working very long hours because of some of the staffing shortages that I've talked about in the past. So I don't blame any controller uh, that they shouldn't stay one minute later than their shift. You know, they, they have very specific hours for their shifts and they shouldn't have to stay one extra minute. So hopefully it was just kind of part of his cleanup routine anyway, where he was packing things up and, and one last little uh, phone call to close the flight plan. But anyway, 
that was very nice of him to do that. Uh, it was this landing into Burlington. It was pretty much the first wintry landing of the year so far, at least for me. Uh, and again, it wasn't it wasn't my landing, but it was it was the captain's landing. And like I said, we were on the approach to runway three three. Which, if you're unfamiliar with uh, Burlington, Vermont, uh, first of all, it's just a beautiful area. It's tucked on the corner of Lake Champlain, and when you're in the, if it's in the daytime and you're landing runway 33 which is facing towards the northwest you come over the mountains uh, and you uh, you come down the approach and then you've got the lake kind of in front of you on the other side of the airport uh, and then it's it's just a beautiful approach of course this was nighttime and we were in the clouds i think we broke out uh, about 1400 feet above the ground uh, before we started picking up the runway lights so it that and it being nighttime, there was there was nothing for us to see, unfortunately. Uh, but if it was during the daytime, it's it's a, a beautiful approach to 3-3. And also runway 1-5 is also uh, beautiful as well, because you're coming over on the other side of the lake, and then you're facing towards the mountains, uh, which that does pose an interesting uh, threat, because in the event that you have to go around when you're approaching runway 1-5, again, pointing to the, to the southeast towards those mountains, if you had to go around, there's a, a special... Um, go-around procedure that you have to conduct in order to, well, not hit the mountains. Uh, so Burlington, even though we're in the Northeast and anyone from the mountainous region of, of Colorado, for example, will laugh at us saying that there's mountains around here, uh, but there are actually some some significant mountains uh, that are that are a bit different from what we're used to, a lot of the, the flatland flying that we do between Boston and New York City all the time. So it just, it, it, uh, meant that we needed to brief a couple of extra things on the approach uh, and that's what we're always about take the extra time that we need to to, to brief up the items uh, in order to conduct the flight safely so we we touched down on uh, runway 33 and and uh, there was a bit of a snow cover there was um, the controller had also mentioned before he uh, closed the tower uh, that braking action was good and, and the FICON which uh, f-i-c-o-n that stands for field condition uh, so the FICON report was 555, uh, and without diving too in-depth or pulling out a chart, what that essentially means is there's different numbers uh, that break down uh, the, the braking action based on the, the how slippery the surface is. So if it was 666, which that's never charted, that just means it's bone dry regardless of the pavement surface because there are different kinds of runways. You have grooved runways, you have smooth top runways, uh, you have crowned runways. I mean, th there's different uh, specific types of runways and that will impact the FICON score, which then for us is, is something we have to take into account regarding you know, what the braking actions are going to be. And so it was, it was a FICON of 555 because of the, um, the light snow that was falling and had accumulated a little bit on the runway. And the reason there are three numbers is because it's for the, the, the touchdown, the midsection, and then the rollout of the runway. So basically split into thirds, if you will. And so sometimes you could have a FICON of 535 because maybe one portion of the runway is more slippery than the other part. Uh, and again, I'm not going to dive into, uh, I can't even remember off the top of my head, uh, the exact specifications of 555. I think it's like an eighth of an inch or less of standing water or light compacted snow or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head, but you get the idea that, okay, if it's anything, if there's a FICON that's been given, you know you have to think about that and account for that in the landing rollout. And if it's less than fives, it becomes a bit of an issue. And, and each airline, each company, 
and, and then of course the personal minimums of a pilot you know whether or not you accept the landing on a runway you know maybe you have to change to another runway or <laughs> if really need be you divert to another airport just because of the the breaking actions at one field and, and this really becomes important especially when the runway is much shorter because if you've got a slippery runway that means less friction you're not able to stop as quickly and, and that becomes a huge safety concern but luckily it was uh, they had just plowed the runway so it was it was decent braking action for sure uh, but when we did uh, the, the captain was, as he was applying the, the last bit of braking pressure to, to try and make the turn at this one taxiway, we could kind of feel the nose wheel start to shudder a little bit as he tried to make the turn. So he had to slow down another 5 to 10 miles an hour before actually making the, the left turn to get off the runway. So we, we had briefed it that, hey, we're going to take our absolute time with this. It's a, it's a decently long runway. There's no need to, to push it with the braking. If we need to roll all the way down to the end, we will. Uh, but he did make this one intersection, which uh, saved us about, I don't think, about a 2,000, maybe 1,500 feet of runway in terms of a shorter taxi, which, again, in the grand scheme of things, is not a big deal because safety is, is the number one concern, and we're not going to try and cut any corners just to save 30 seconds once we're on the ground. But anyway, we, uh, we exited the runway, and I remarked to the captain that, oh, man, this is just beautiful. It was, uh, again, it was... Uh, about a moderate snowfall that was coming down and, and uh, there was snow everywhere and it was midnight so it's just absolutely quiet but you had some lights around and uh, with the airport lighting and, and some of the ambient lighting around it's just really beautiful to see the, the snowfall and I I really love the winter um, I, I think it's important to have a change of seasons of course uh, some people absolutely hate the cold and that's fine but I, I do like the change and, and seeing some of the the winter scapes uh, is really unique. And, and some of these destinations we go to, uh, particularly in the, the Lakes region, you know, the, the Buffalo, the Rochester, Syracuse overnights, and, and up here in Burlington, just beautiful scenery. And once we got, uh, got all squared away, parked the jet, actually coming in, finding the line uh, that, that guides you into the gate, that was a little challenging. So we kind of had to work together and take our time with that. Uh, but once we got outside, out to the curb, the, the uh, transportation came to pick us up, bring us to the hotel. Uh, and it was it was a little chilly, a little windy. I realized that I think I need to start bringing my overcoat, <laughs> my bigger overcoat for some of these overnights. I mean, it was in the high 20s, um, but a little bit breezy. And so the blazer was uh, maybe not quite warm enough for me on this one. But we made it to the hotel, checked in, and uh, this morning, I, I guess it was really late morning into the early afternoon, I went out and ventured around. There's this unique application that we have where we can share schedules with each other. Um, we've got friends and, uh, and you can see where each other are, uh, at different overnights or, or at airports. If you got enough time, you can meet up. But one feature that I really love about this application is that we can see recommendations for different places to check out on your overnight. If you got enough time at your hotel, you know whether it's within walking distance or there's public transport or a cheap enough Uber, taxi ride, whatever, there's all kinds of places to go. And this location we're at uh, for our overnight is pretty much right in downtown Burlington. So it's, it's walking distance to, to everything. And when I woke up this morning, 
my hotel room is just on the corner, so I have actually a, a little view uh, right now. I'm actually looking outside, a little view of, of the corner of Lake Champlain off to the other side, some some buildings downtown. I, it's just a beautiful, beautiful area. And even right now, I mean, it's kind of overcast and, and dreary, and uh, it just looks cold and bone-chilling outside, but I think it's in the high 20s. Uh, not too bad. I, I did bring a different jacket. Um, to uh, go for a walk outside. I forgot my hat, but luckily I had a hoodie, and, and I just walked around and, and really enjoyed the scenery. There's a really nice bike path along the way, and uh, and again, because of this application uh, that we have, um, there, there was a recommendation for a bakery nearby, so I, I checked that place out, got a really nice breakfast sandwich, and, and then walked around some more, and just a beautiful area, uh, absolutely beautiful. And uh, what's really unfortunate is that JetBlue is no longer going to be conducting service to Burlington, Vermont anymore, starting middle of January for 2024. So that's really sad uh, because this place is really unique. I think it's only my second overnight in Burlington ever. Uh, The last, maybe my third, but the last couple overnights I had in Burlington were really short overnights. And so I didn't have time to explore. And and because they were short overnights, it was at a, uh, a different hotel that was closer to the airport. Because downtown, we're about 20 minutes from the airport, uh, which is totally fine. But if you have a shorter overnight, it's more convenient to have a, a closer hotel. But it, this was a, a longer overnight. I've got a couple more hours here uh, until I need to report this evening. But uh, like I said, the, the last couple overnights, I didn't have time to, to check things out. So I was just really happy to, to be able to check things out. And, and unfortunately, this is the only overnight I have for the month of December uh, for Burlington. So this this will probably be it unless there's another one in the beginning of January before they cease operations here. But it's sad. It's unfortunate. Uh, I'll definitely have to to travel and check out Burlington on on my own time because there's a there's a lot of things around here to do. And and I imagine during the summer it gets pretty crazy and touristy for good reason. I mean, it's 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 such a beautiful area, but it was actually really nice how quiet it was. There's this little uh, beach that I walked along. was it Texaco Beach or Tuxedo Beach or something like that along the bike path just to the north of the hotel here and I had the entire beach to myself it was really nice of course it's cold you know (laughs) I don't expect too many people to be out there are a few people uh, out walking their dogs along the trail but it was very quiet just such a peaceful peaceful time uh, so once I'm I'm done recording this, uh, we've got, let's see, today uh, a few more legs. Yeah, we go Burlington back to Kennedy. Uh, if you haven't gotten the theme of this, I go to Kennedy a lot now, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, so Burlington, Kennedy, Kennedy to D.C., and then D.C. back to Boston. And we get into Boston about 1130 tonight, so it'll be a pretty late night for sure. Uh, and then... I, uh, the, the worst part of my December is, is coming up into tomorrow because like I said, this is a two day trip right now. You know, we get back to Boston tonight, but then it's another, uh, it's back to with another two day trip tomorrow. And so we get into Boston at 1130 tonight and then tomorrow I have to report at 11 AM, uh, back in Boston for another two day trip. So that means a very limited amount of time at home. It is legal. Uh, it, it does give me the legal amount of rest time, but it's still by the time I get home and, and everything, it's just it's ugh, it's not too much time. 
Which brings me to kind of the topic of today's podcast. I thought I'd talk a little bit about rest rules uh, and making sure that we get uh, our proper rest. Because uh, up until, I'm not sure exactly when the regulations came out, it might not have been until the early 2000s that uh, one of the sections of the Federal Aviation Regulations, or FARs, is Part 117 which is the rest rules, uh, flight time limitations, and duty time limitations, which is really important. Because up until then, there were no laws governing how pilot schedules would work out, and fatigue was becoming a real issue. And fatigue wasn't really studied as much until some unfortunate accidents started to occur. And And that's one of the kind of tragic but important aspects of aviation. The reason why things are as safe as they are today is because we've learned from our mistakes. And we've we've determined that, you know, if A and B goes wrong, uh, that we're able to figure things out and prevent that that sort of thing happening uh, in the future. So one, one prime example is the, the Colgan crash. I forget the flight number it was. I believe they were flying into Buffalo, New York. I could be mistaken. Uh, but the two pilots had been on duty for something like 15 hours, uh, or at least they had been awake for 15 or 20 hours. I forget it, the exact details of it. But long story short, the two pilots were commuters, and this was a, a regional carrier and a turboprop aircraft. So just terrible schedules for the most part, uh, particularly for a, a commuter. And so the two of them had been awake for far too long and they were operating one last flight into I believe it was Buffalo I could be mistaken Um, but they were coming in really late at night kind of similar to last night where it's it's late it's midnight and there's snow falling and they had also started building up some some ice on the wings and now the aircraft I can't I can't I can't I'd have to look up the the incident or the accident rather but uh, again it was a turboprop aircraft that had de-icing equipment but the amount of ice they were accumulating was it was too much for uh, the aircraft to really handle. So uh, unfortunately, they accumulated enough ice where their stall speed had increased. Because again, when you have ice adhering to the leading edge of the wing or any part of the, the aircraft for that matter, it will change the way the airflow moves about the wing and the rest of the aircraft. And so because of that, when you change the shape of the wing, you are in effect changing the angle of attack, which is that angle between the the wing and the uh, the relative wind, the wind hitting the wing. So, by changing that angle, uh, changing that angle of attack, changing the shape of the wing with this ice accretion, you're increasing your stall speed, meaning that the speed at which the aircraft, the the wing, will go into an aerodynamic stall is increased. So, when you start setting up for an approach and you start slowing down. If you don't account for that and you just slow down to your normal speed, well, you're going to find yourself in a hairy situation. And that's what happened to this crew. They were really tired and they weren't paying attention to the fact that they were getting really close to stall speed and their stall recovery was inappropriate. Uh, Normally with a stall recovery, all the time with a stall recovery, I should say, the very first thing that we always do is we uh, decrease the angle of attack. Uh, the very first thing we do, always decrease the angle of attack to get airflow back over the wings. Uh, and another interesting mistake that one of the pilots made is that the flaps were already out 
and they actually retracted the flaps in the middle of the attempt at the recovery and this made the uh, the situation worse because what flaps do is they also change the shape of the wing uh, and, and in this situation the flaps probably shouldn't have been deployed at that situation but the retraction made it far worse because flaps also change the shape of the wing uh, thus changing the stall speed and it, the flaps did increase a lot of drag but they should have left them in the down position until they fully recovered from the stall but unfortunately they were retracted and therefore uh, the aircraft stalled and, and it hit the ground short of the airport but there were there were many chains of a chain of events that led up to this incident and this is in, in safety what we we go over is we have a, either a, a couple different models. We either, either call it the uh, the Swiss cheese model or the um, just breaking links in a chain model where an accident or an incident, the only reason it happens is because there's a series of events that lead up to it. You know, no accident's going to happen just out of the blue, or at least for the most part. You know, a lot of these accidents that happen in aviation, it's a series of events that, that lead up to it. And fatigue was one big reason for that. And so this was one of many uh, incidents and accidents that, that caused the, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, to, to finally uh, introduce this regulation, Part 117, which has to do with, with rest rules. So, like I said, for, for my schedule, this two days backed by another two days. So I, I come into Boston tonight at 11.30 p.m. and report tomorrow at 11 a.m. So that is about 10... My duty off is actually 15 minutes after our time in, so that is uh, 11.45 p.m. to 11 a.m. report. So 12 hours minus the 45 minutes, so that's going to be 11 hours and 15 minutes, which is not um, not a long time, right? Uh, 11 hours and 15 minutes, not, not a long time at all. And in part 117, our minimum rest requirements from duty off to duty on is 10 hours. And that's between one duty segment to the next duty segment. So for this situation, you know, of, of one night to the next morning, we need at least 10 hours. 10 hours of rest. Now, the interesting thing about 10 hours of rest is that that doesn't account for, you know, having to get home and, and actually getting inside and getting to bed and getting an adequate amount of sleep. There are recommendations that are set forth that pilots should get about eight hours of sleep, but everybody's different. Uh, the average adult, I think, sleeps somewhere between six to seven hours or something like that. And I've kind of worked on my sweet spot with my sleep where it's, and there are studies proving this too, where it's not so much about the duration of your sleep, but the cycles that you go through and, uh, and, and ensuring that you go through the full cycle of sleep and not just a partial cycle because if it gets broken up that's you know it's going to ruin ruin your sleep cycle so I've, I've found that typically the sweet spot for me is about seven and a half seven to seven and a half hours of sleep if it's honestly eight hours or more sometimes i'll i'll wake up feeling a little groggy because i, I went started to go into another sleep cycle and if it's less than seven uh, on the flip side you know i didn't make it through to the next sleep cycle uh, appropriately so everyone's different, right? And no two people are the same with their sleep cycle. But generally speaking, generally speaking, six, seven, eight hours of sleep is what we need, uh, particularly when it comes to flying an aircraft. It's very important to be rested. So those 10 hours 
while might seem like it's enough, again, because tonight we get in at 11.30, I'll probably catch the, the midnight bus home. Uh, by the time I get home, it'll be closer to 1 a.m., all right? Now I get inside, get all squared away for bed. It's probably at least 1.30, right? And then if I have an 11 a.m. base report, that means I need to leave probably around 9.30 a.m. So you can kind of see how the timing gets really squeezed, right? A 10-hour rest period, or, or in this case tonight, uh, I should be at about 11 hours and 15 minutes, and hopefully we get in early to give myself some more time. But in that situation, it's, it's not the most wiggle room, right? It's legal, and there is opportunity for me to get my rest, right? But it's still, it still pushes it a little bit. And, and for my whole month, my whole December schedule, this is the only time that this occurs this bad. The, there are two other back-to-back -back trips that I have later in the month, but they have way more rest than that. I think the, the other one is 18, and I think another one is about 24 hours in between. So a lot of extra time. But for this, it's, it's a bit tight, uh, which is unfortunate. But that's just the way that it goes. Um, so into, into the next trip, Again, 11 a.m. report, I think it's a 12 p.m. departure. I'll go Boston, D.C., D.C., Boston, Boston to Pittsburgh, spend the night in Pittsburgh, and then the following day, Pittsburgh, Boston, Boston, D.C., D.C., Boston. So, yeah, this week is, is a lot of Kennedy and a lot of D.C., uh, but, but that's okay. Uh, but back to the, the rest rules. The one thing that uh, has come about with the, the Part 117 uh, the rest rules. So, so like I said, we have the, the 10 hours of, of minimum rest in between duty period segments. And within a week, which it's, it's actually defined as 168 hours, which essentially is a week, you need to have at least one 30-hour break. And so that's why, generally speaking, we will only work at the most six days on, and then we're going to have at least a day off. And then the from that uh, end of the sixth day, the end of your of our duty time, to the day off, and then that next day on, you know, it needs to have at least thirty hours, right? And one interesting thing that I've noticed on some friends' schedules, this is ha has not happened to me yet, especially being on the the one ninety, because it's it's a lot of smaller regional type routes, and so the schedules just don't really match up to this. But what I have seen on some friend schedules who are doing some of the, the longer, you know, transcontinental uh, flights is that in order to make this legal to get that 30 hours of rest, sometimes the company will actually factor in, they might put back-to-back -back trips, but they'll factor in a layover that is at least 30 hours long. And that will fit the, the rest requirements per part 117 of the regulations. So you might be at work for eight, nine days or something, right? And it, it could be these two back-to-back -back trips. They will never make a, a single trip that is more than six days, but they, they could make back-to-backs where kind of similar to what's happening tonight where I have, you know, I get in late at night, I report, you know, before noon the next day, and that clearly isn't the 30 hours of rest for that 168-hour uh, period but they can factor in a layover. So I've, like I said, I've seen this on a couple of friends' schedules, which is really interesting. Uh, and, and that will be, I'm sure it'll happen to me at some point when I do switch uh, to the Airbus, which is coming up uh, next year, where they, they will factor in a, a layover that is, is at least 30 hours. And, and that's, that's fine, because in terms of rest rules and legality, it's, it's perfectly legal. 
but it does mean that there's a potential to be away for a very long time, which is just, it's, it's part of the job. As I've discussed in the past, I mean, this is, this is the job. We're on the road a lot or in the air, I should say. <laughs> um, but it is really interesting how it, companies will really try and work their way around these rules and, and or rather work with them, I should say. But a lot of it sometimes seems like they're working around it. Uh, and you can't blame them, right? Because if you're running an airline, everything is about cost effectiveness, right? And, and being more efficient because an airline is not a lucrative business at all. In fact, airlines make most of their money through their credit cards, believe it or not. Uh, when they have people come on and then they accrue interest because they're not paying off their credit card bills in time or something, you know, that that's where the airline will actually make more money. Because when it comes to operations and efficiency, I mean, if, if one crew has to, or even just one crew member has to call out sick, or, and that causes a delay here, and uh, only half of this plane gets booked, and, and then the other one's overbooked, I mean, there's all these different elements that come together and kind of make it very hard to make money uh, on, on a... Uh, on a single flight. I mean, there, there are numerous flights where the airline will lose money, but then they'll make it up in other places. And again, like I said, they'll make most of their money with the credit cards. And another thing that, that JetBlue has done too is you've probably heard of uh, JetBlue Paisley, uh, JetBlue Vacations, and different things like that. So that they also have different vacation packages and other uh, combo things where you can get a flight and a rental car, which is really neat too. And, and I'm sure that's also another place that, that JetBlue makes their money. I don't have any of the numbers or anything like that, but I'm, I'm just assuming that that's probably pretty accurate. <laughs> but like I said, uh, sometimes the efficiency of some of these trips is is uh, not great for us as pilots, but there's a reason for it, and that's for the company to save money. So at least we have the, the Part 117 to protect us to make sure we're legal and we're rested. But on the flip side, it can be a little frustrating when we have interesting pairings, interesting trips that, that make our schedules very strange uh, and will work at odd times of the day. And, and again, like I've said right now, on the 190 doing these more regional routes, it's eh, a little more, it's, it's a little easier to have kind of normal schedules where maybe I'm coming home at a more reasonable hour. But once I switch to the Airbus, I know I will be doing some red eyes and that will be strange departing at 10 p.m. and arriving at 5 a.m., you know, that, that'll be weird. And I'm sure I will have plenty of stories about that coming up sometime next year. But back back to the, the rest rules. So we have our 10 hours of rest, right? And then I mentioned the 168 hours in a, um, we need a 38-hour break in that 168 hours. The other thing we have, and I'm just pulling up the, uh, the table in part 117, we call this uh, table B, is we have our, uh, well, for, first I'll do table A, table A and table B. So table A of part 117 is the, it's the maximum flight time limits for unaugmented operations. And unaugmented means it's just the two pilots operating the aircraft. Once you start doing some long haul flights uh, that, you know, they're in excess of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, all these really long haul flights that are typically flown on uh, wide body aircraft, you will need more than just two pilots because they're going to be flying a very long time. And so pilots will come in and fill in, uh, and then another pilot will go in the back and take a nap uh, and, and be off-duty, essentially. And so table A for, for the unaugmented, which which is what I'm doing, it's just the two of us, 
has to do with what time you are reporting. So your report time, if it's between, uh, let's see, it's, it's between midnight and 4.59, the maximum flight time that we can fly for the day is eight hours. If our report time is from 5 a.m. until 7.59 p.m., the maximum is nine hours. And then if it's between 8 p.m. and uh, 11.59 p.m., then it's eight hours again. And again, this is this is the time of report. So I say that, you know, if, if you reported at 9 p.m., that falls within the 8 to 11.59 slot. So therefore, you can fly for eight hours. And then uh, after that, you, you have to stop, right? You can never extend that. Uh, so if there's any situation where you know, you're getting delayed because of de-icing procedures or something like that. You have to take that into account, and sometimes that could mean returning to the gate. And that hasn't happened to me yet, and I say yet because I'm sure it will happen. Uh, it's it's kind of a miracle that being two years into this career already that I have not yet had something like that happen where I've had to return to the gate because I time out for my, my flight time or, or duty time limitation. But that hasn't happened yet. Again, yet. I'm sure it will. Speaking of duty, table B refers to the, the flight uh, duty period, again, for the unaugmented operations. And this has to do with the report time that that you, or the, the start time of the, of the pairing of the trip, uh, or I should say within that trip of that day, and then how many legs, how many flight segments during that day. So the, the table breaks down times between midnight, 3.59, 4 and 4.59, 5, 5.59, 6, 6.59, so on and so forth. It kind of splits up a little bit more where it goes 7 to 11.59, 12 to 12.59, 1 to 4.59, 5 to 9.59, 10 to 10.59, and 11 to 11.59. And then the other part of the table breaks down, again, how many legs. So uh, if you're doing one leg and you reported between 6 a.m. and 6.59 a.m., your duty time is 13 hours. And let me take a step back. Duty time, what does that mean? Well, the duty time begins with when you report for work, which each company is gonna be a little bit different. For, for me, it's one hour prior to departure. I have to check in, and there's just an app that I check in on my phone, letting the company know that, yep, I'm here at the airport, ready for work. So that begins one hour before the first uh, departure time. Uh, if, if I'm operating. If it's a deadhead where I'm sitting as a passenger, it's actually 30 minutes prior, but that's getting into the weeds. Um, but uh, from one hour prior, and then the last flight of the day, from the time that we block in, meaning we get to the gate, it's, for me, uh, 15 minutes after. Again, every company might be a little different. Some might be 30. I don't think I know of any that are a full hour after block in, but uh, pretty much right after you, you block in for the day, that's the end of the duty period. And so for this example, if, if it was a report of 6.30 a.m., the table says between 6 and 6.59 a.m., your maximum duty time is 13 hours, and that's if you only had one leg. Uh, so that that's kind of a weird one where uh, maybe it started with a limo or a deadhead or something like that, uh, but it's usually in that situation because if it's unaugmented it's only two pilots you're never going to fly 13 hours anyway and you're not going to have a break in between flights because it's just one leg so let's say if it's two legs oh here we go it's also 13 hours how about that so you could report for the first flight 
operate that flight, and then you might have this big sit in the middle of it, which are awful. Many of us pilots, I'd, I'd be very surprised if there's a single pilot out there who likes long sits. Sometimes they're convenient if you were going to meet up with someone or something like that, or there was an activity you were going to do, but for the most part, having to sit in between flights is just not enjoyable, particularly if you're not in a location that might have a crew lounge or anything like that, uh, and, and there's nothing much to do other than just hang around the airport. Sometimes they're not the best. They're not the most efficient use of your time. So in this example, if you reported for one flight, uh, maybe it was a two-hour flight, so maybe you were about three hours into your duty, and then you had a four-hour sit. All of a sudden, you're at seven hours of duty, and then, I don't know, maybe you had another three-hour flight, right? Uh, and now you're at 10 hours of duty, uh, and then maybe it, it carries over to 11 hours. So all of a sudden, you operated two flights, and you're at 11 hours of duty. That's pretty close to that 13-hour duty time. So you can see how important it is to keep track of this, because obviously the longer you're on duty the more tired you're gonna get. And that's what this all boils down to. The part 117 flight duty and, and the maximum flight time limits, it all has to do with ensuring we get proper rest, that we're not on duty for too long. Because the last thing we want, in terms of safety, the last thing we want is for any pilots uh, to, to be potentially fatigued before or during operating a flight. I mean, that's really bad. That, that has a huge impact on safety. And again, because of these regulations, Luckily, this this really covers us. And what's interesting about uh, th this is that sometimes we might see things pop up in our schedule that just look awful, that, that just don't look favorable. They look like it's going to make us tired. And there's a good chance that it will. What's really good about safety culture in the airlines, at, at most airlines, uh, particularly at, at, at mine, that... If there's a situation where you're fearing, feeling tired, you're feeling fatigued, you just call out fatigue. And that's so important because it is just not worth risking the safety of yourself, your fellow crew members, and the passengers, and everyone around you. It's just not worth uh, the safety. And yes, it's going to inconvenience people because there are going to be delays, possibly cancellations, but sometimes you just have to call out fatigue. And that's fine. Uh, I have not luckily had to do that yet. Again, I say yet because it's probably going to happen. There's going to be some trip, some pairing where something gets messed up or we have de-icing procedures and it's backed up. We're waiting three hours, you know, to get all de-iced and everything and and things can get really fatiguing and that's fine. And sometimes if you have to go back to the gate, you have to go back to the gate. That's just the way it goes because, again, it boils down to safety. That's the number one thing. And in the eyes of the public, you're not going to want to get on a flight knowing that your pilots are fatigued, right? So yeah, it might be frustrating if you see the pilot exit the aircraft and you're like, wait, where's our pilot going? Well, they're really tired. They've been working for 12 hours today and they're about to time out and it's too close, you know, and the, the company might be asking them to extend, but they're just not willing to make that risk. And they are calling out fatigue and that's, that's totally fine. So that's what's really good is that there are certain situations where you can get in trouble with the company when it comes to maybe denying a trip or causing a fuss about it. Uh, because yeah, like I said, some pairings, some trips are just not efficient and they look awful. Uh, but instead of, you know, having issues with it, you can just uh, call out fatigue when the time arises. You know, it's, it's not like a get out of jail free type of card where you just use it whenever. It's, it's there for a reason, um, but it's, it's so important uh, because 
Flying tired is the worst thing ever, and many accidents that have happened within aviation all lead back to fatigue. So going back to my schedule, right? Again, I get in tonight at of uh, just before midnight, and then I'll probably get home at 1 a.m. And I'm I'm gonna really be on top of it in terms of ensuring that I get to bed quickly and and try and get that sleep that I need before waking up the next morning. But the nice thing I know is that I don't plan on this, of course. I, I would never plan. You know, you're, you're never planning on calling out fatigue, right? You're, you're going to work your schedule until something happens, right? Uh, but just knowing that I have that in my back pocket, that Part 117 and rules with the company, it's, it's all there to protect you because at the end of the day, safety is paramount. That's what's incredibly important, that, that we get from point A to point B as safely as possible. And if anyone's tired, that's going to impede that safety. So tonight I get home, got to get up uh, you know, earlier than I'm going to want to for the next day, but I will make sure that I'm well rested, that I get my usual cup of coffee that I absolutely love. Uh, this one thing that's kind of funny about us pilots is if we don't run on caffeine, uh, some people must have something else, some other tricks up their sleeve because uh, caffeine does help a lot. Uh, but I also enjoy the taste of coffee, which I know some people will probably find that wild, but I really do love the taste of coffee too. But anyway, I'm going to make sure that I'm really well rested. Uh, and, and if I'm not, that's okay. I, I will let them know that, hey, you know what? I am not feeling well rested enough to operate this flight. I need some more rest. And once I'm rested, I can come back to work. And that's perfectly fine. Because like I mentioned in the last episode, this is, uh, this is my busy month. I'm working 90, supposed to be flying 95 hours. Uh, that's working, I think it was 20, no, 19 days. 19 days off, on with 11 days off, I believe. So it's a busy month. And here we are just in the first week alone with this crazy back-to-back schedule with a very limited overnight. But it, this is part of the job. It's really exciting. I Even though, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit tough, uh, particularly with, with family and friends at home trying to plan things. Uh, like I've mentioned in the past, sometimes you have to create new schedules and work around things. But it's still, it's, it's still so much fun. I mean, just last night, even though it was four legs, it was it was a longer day. It was it was a blast. Uh, I did two landings in Kennedy. The first one, uh, we were landing in two two left, and <laughs> funny thing, we come in, we touch down, and I I pulled a pretty good greaser out of that one. And the captain, once we get slowing down, he says, "Oh, that's gonna be a tough act to follow." <laughs> so that's pretty funny, hearing that from from the captain because it was it was a it was a nice soft landing, which we all pride ourselves on. And then, uh, you know, we, we take turns with the legs, so the captain took the next one. And then on my, uh, my next leg, again, back to Kennedy, we were coming through 10,000 feet, set up for 2-2 left again. And then, whew, last minute, they changed us to 2-2 right. So a, a last minute runway change about 10 minutes before landing. And we're below 10,000 feet, so we're in the sterile cockpit environment. And this means that the workload for the pilot monitoring increases a lot because once we're below 10,000 feet, the pilot flying needs to just fly the aircraft and, and can't be heads down, can't be uh, working anything out. So pilot monitoring is in charge of, of plugging in the new approach and, and getting new runway landing data uh, to make sure that we're all set to land on the runway. So we, we, again, we work as a team and we get it done and it's no issue. It just adds to the workload coming in. So we switched runways. And what's really interesting about runway 22 right 
in Kennedy is that it's offset. The localizer, which is the, the guidance laterally that brings us to the runway, it's offset to the right, most likely to help with the fact that there's a parallel runway uh, on the left side, two to left. So it's offset. And then there was also a crosswind from the right, about 15 knots or so. So we're offset and I'm crabbed into the wind to the right. And it just looked wrong. It was the weirdest sight picture I think I've seen. And I, I had landed on 2-2 right maybe only once before, because generally most arrivals, when they're landing south like that, will land on 2-2 left. They, they generally will depart 2-2 right or sometimes 3-1. But it, they rarely have arrivals on 2-2 right. The reason they did that is they just needed to space some of the arrivals out, and they had the room in terms of departures, so they fit us in. And again, this was so weird. Uh, because I, I think the last time I did that, it might have been a visual approach, so I was kind of just more lined up. I wasn't ignoring the localizer, but I knew I was deflected a little, but it was visual. But last night, uh, even though we broke out of the clouds, I could see the runway, I just I stayed with the localizer. And because of the winds, I left the autopilot on a little bit longer than I usually do, just because the sight picture was really throwing me off. Not to mention 2-2 right has an insanely large displaced threshold. And for those who don't know a displaced threshold, is this chunk of payment that is is used for takeoff but not for landing. So when you're taking off, you start your takeoff roll and uh, there could be a thousand, and I think with this one it's about 1,500 feet of runway before you'll actually see the landing threshold where you're gonna see the the, the beginning of the runway stripes and the, and the numbers for the runway. So two two right would be on the paint, on the pavement. So this, this very largely displaced threshold is very strange because you see the runway lighting and even though the displaced threshold lights, the, the outline of the runway is, uh, it's red, telling you, you know, hey, don't land here. Uh, and then the white edge lighting begins uh, once you get to the threshold. It still is very deceiving because you see these lights that are telling you, hey, this is pavement. You can land on me. But no, you can't because it's a displaced threshold. <laughs> it's just very trippy. So that in combination with the offset and the crab angle. It was, it was a very interesting uh, approach where I had to really focus on just trusting the instruments and having them guide me to the runway, and then I kind of stepped it over and lined back up uh, once we got closer to the ground. Uh, and one of the really nice tools we have on our, on our Ember 190s, I'm going to miss this so much when, we leave, when I leave the aircraft, uh, is the HUD, which is the HUD, the Heads Up Display. And if, if you've seen any um, pictures or videos of, of, it's very common in military aircraft. It's not as common in civilian airliners, but there, there are a few aircraft out there that actually have them. Uh, but these, these heads-up displays, it's kind of like a holographic thing that we use where it's a, a glass panel that has uh, data that's, that's projected onto it, but we can look through the glass panel out into the runway. So we have a bunch of our, our data, you know, regarding airspeed, glide slope, uh, uh, altitude, all, all this different, all these different data points that we have uh, on our primary flight display, but it's projected up onto this, this, uh, this HUD, this heads up display. So it's, it's really great to take all that information in while you're looking through it at the runway, which is really cool. Uh, and again, with this crab angle, the offset, the flight path vector, which tells me exactly the path of the aircraft, was pointed right there, right where I needed to touch down. But the nose and where I was looking straight ahead was way to the right uh, and, and just so offset. It was, again, very bizarre, but 
trusted the instruments, brought it in, no problem. And and luckily the crosswind kind of died down as we got below the the city line, below some of the the buildings there, uh, which which helps limit some of that crosswind. So that helped out too. Uh, but it, it was it was very strange. So anyway, I guess where I was going with that thought is. Sometimes, you know, schedules get crazy and, and I have to think about things like duty time and making sure I'm getting uh, applicable rest. And, and at the end of the day, it's it's still a job, but I have so much fun because we have unique things like this where one landing on 2-2 left is going to be vastly different from a landing on 2-2 right uh, and no two days are the same. Uh, and then, you know, we come up to Burlington, we get the snowfall, we get the beautiful scenery and and then on to tomorrow. Uh, we Going back into D.C., I, it's been probably about a month since I've done D.C. I, I love the approaches into D.C. Landing south, we get to do the, the river visual, if it's if it's visual conditions, or the RMP, the the, uh, the GPS approach to runway 19, where we follow the river, the curvature of the river, guiding us to runway 19. And we have to do that very specifically, otherwise we will fly into the prohibited airspace that is surrounding the National Mall, all the monuments, the, the White House, and the Capitol building. So... Uh, there's a lot of restrictions there that we have to follow, and it's it's a very fun approach. And you're you're turning up until like four, maybe 300 feet before leveling the wings and touching down. It's it's such a fun approach. So hopefully, uh, we'll be doing that this uh, this next day and into the next couple days as well. So, got a, a busy December ahead of me, and and I I imagine most of the episodes this month will probably be recorded like they are right now in a hotel room because some of my overnights do have enough time in the hotel where I have time to explore, maybe go to the gym and also record an episode or two, but my actual time at home is going to be limited. I guess that's when I'll be editing some of these podcasts, but other than that, it's like I said, a busy month. So anyway, that pretty much wraps up this episode of Clear for Takeoff. I hope you enjoyed the content, talking about a little bit about the fatigue uh, in part 117 with our, our duty time and flight time limitations. It's, it's, again, such an important aspect of this career that flying planes is an absolute dream, as I've said it multiple times, but it's still so important to be properly rested because something that you enjoy is not going to be good if you're tired doing so. So we got to make sure that we are always rested. Speaking of that, it's time to get to work, get home, and get some of that key rest before turning right back around to the airport the next morning. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of Clear for Takeoff. I'll be back next time. And until then, as always, fly safe. <music>